We're going to talk a few weeks here about uh, David. We're going to spend time in particular in one of the Psalms of his. Like Abraham, uh, David uh, saw beyond his own place in history. Abraham had seen the day of the coming of the Messiah. In fact, he had probably, by way of what we would call a theophany, had encountered the Lord Jesus uh, in his own circumstances and situation. David, like Abraham, saw his immediate place in history, but he also saw, without question, the future and what God was doing, that he was simply in the line of a promise that God had made to Abraham and that he was continuing that line and through his line, God would bring forth the Messiah. We know David's story. We're probably too familiar with it in many ways. We know the story of the the young shepherd boy who was out in a field when the prophet Samuel came to Jesse's home and God had told him to go to Jesse's home and God would show him who the next king was going to be. God had rejected Saul along the same lines that he had, had judged Herod. He judges Saul for having been disobedient and having not been a man after God's heart. And so he sends Samuel to Jesse's home. Jesse parades all of his good-looking, strapping young sons before him, all of whom looked like they could be kingly material. But Samuel said, it's not one of these. You must have another son. He said, oh, yeah, well, David, well, he's young. He's out there watching the sheep. And he said, go get him. And when he came, Samuel anointed him that he would be the king of Israel after Saul had departed. We know about David facing Goliath. We know that wonderful, wonderful story and the encouragement that it gives us in our own experiences in life. We know him as the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. So many of the psalms are penned by David and the intimacy with which he knew God and the worshipful heart that he had towards God is evident in the psalms that he has written. We also know David in his vulnerability. We know him at his point of weakness and great sin with Bathsheba, both coveting and committing sexual sin with her, and then the premeditated and calculated murder of her husband, Uriah. The confrontation between Nathan the prophet and David, and David admitting to his guilt and confessing his sin, and that wonderful Psalm 51 records the words of David, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He confessed deeply. He repented deeply. But David's flaws remind us that it's people like him and therefore people like us that God uses in this world for his purposes. David was someone who the Spirit of God rested upon. 
Instead of David, when Samuel anointed him, that the Spirit of God rushed upon him or <clears throat> came upon him quickly. And the Spirit of God remained with David. David was not just a king. David was a prophet. He was a prophet. He saw beyond. He saw the kingdom beyond his earthly kingdom. He saw the royal crown that was greater than his own crown as the king of Israel. And his psalms reflect that. Many of the psalms are what we would call messianic psalms. And in those psalms, David is often serving two purposes. There are two purposes that David is serving in all of these psalms that he writes. Number one, he's speaking to the people and the circumstances of his own day, always. You cannot read the prophets, cannot read the psalms without understanding the context in which they are written. They're always written to the people of that time in their historical context. But there is more than that. David is not only speaking to the people of God there, he is also speaking prophetically. Speaking prophetically often of the Messiah's reign and His eternal kingdom. And Psalm 2 is a great example of this. Of David both speaking to people in that historic situation on a coronation day, but then also speaking prophetically. Psalm 2 speaks about a universal kingdom and a throne that is established forever and ever. It's only can be attributed to the Messiah. Some of what he says could obviously apply to him, but it can only apply in full to the Messiah that's to come. Warren Wiersbe said Psalm 2 is quoted or alluded to at least 18 times, more than any other psalm in the New Testament it is referred to. It is a messianic description of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to start in on that today, and we'll finish it maybe next week. But let's look at verse 1 and see what David says to us. And what we're looking for, as you remember... We're looking for the heart that we need to have, the heart that we need to have for the nations, the heart we need to have for our life of worship with God. So <clears throat> verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Why do the nations rage and the people plot? If you've got a pencil and you're using your Bible, you might want to underline that word plot or circle it. You see, some people believe that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are actually one psalm, that it's an artificial division. See, Psalm 1 begins, how blessed is the man. Psalm 2 ends saying, blessed are the people who do such and such. Psalm 1 talks about how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the what? The law of the Lord. And in his law, he what? He meditates day and night. Now, that word, meditate, is the same word that is used 
in verse 1, the word plot. It's described in a negative way there. Somebody scheming, somebody plotting. But it's the same Hebrew word. The same word when it speaks about meditating on God's word in Psalm 1 is the same word in Psalm 2 and verse 1. Both Psalms speak of meditation or plotting. We can meditate, can't we? We can meditate on God's Word. That's what Psalm 1 tells us to do. And in meditating on God's Word, it promises that we will be fruitful, that we will be strong, that we will develop. We can grow in our relationship to God. We can also meditate or plot on our own plans, our own ways, apart from God. There's much human misery. There's much sadness. There are many mistakes, missteps that are made because instead of being people who first meditate upon God's Word and seek to listen to Him and <clears throat> understand His thoughts and His ways, we turn first to our own thoughts, to our own ways. And so we're governed often by our fears. We're governed often by our skepticism. We're governed by our doubts. We're governed by our anger or our emotion. We're governed by our own thinking and reasoning that might not know the full story of the decisions that we're trying to make. God does. That's why He asks us to meditate upon Him, because as we meditate upon Him, He can more faithfully lead us in the way in which we are to go. That's why His Word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And when we put God's Word first and we make that our daily meditation, God can more faithfully lead us in the way that we should go. But when we refuse to meditate and instead start plotting <clears throat> what we think we should do, what we think is the best course of action, what we think is the answer to a, a given situation with which we are confused or troubled by, we can often miss it. Isaiah 26, verse 3. We all know this verse, don't we? You will keep him in what? Perfect peace, whose mind is what? Is stayed on thee, or who's focused on thee. When our hearts are focused on God, you say, well, Jeff, how do I know that my thoughts are focused on God? I'll tell you the primary way you know that Scripture meditation is part of your daily life. When you are letting Scripture meditation be part of your daily experience of devotion, then you are a person whose mind is going to be kept in peace, not governed by fear, not governed by troubles, not governed by reactions to, pro to problems, but responses to God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. Verses 2 through 3, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Sounds like it could be written today, doesn't it? In this particular passage, David is referring to the ruling uh, leaders and monarchs of tribes, all the ites that are out there of different tribes around Jerusalem who are <clears throat> gathered together 
and conspiring with one another. How can we get out from under this guy's thumb? How can we get out from under the obvious control and the dominion of David in this area? How can we cast off these cords? We've got to find a way to come against this man. And that was true in that historical situation, but that passage also is referring us to the very hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ in our day. The rulers have taken counsel against the Lord and His what? Capital A, what? Anointed. The Lord and His anointed. That is a reference not simply to an earthly king. That is a reference to the Messiah. Why? The nations rage against Jesus Christ because they hate Him. Why do we see these rumblings, these these troubles, these violent movements, these, these, uh, uh, these unrenewed mind-controlled attacks in our days. It's because they are seeking to throw off constraint, to throw off the cords of God's law and God's kingdom. Verses 4 through 6, He who sits in the heavens laughs. He who sits in the heavens laughs. God is not panicked. He is not upset. He is not caught off guard. Let me read you that Acts passage. We'll just back up to that for a minute because I want you to see how they use this psalm in Acts. Again, just to reiterate that it's being used in a messianic way. Acts chapter 4, and starting at verse 23. When they were released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. This is Peter and John, who'd been, uh, they'd healed that man, and they got in trouble for talking about Christ, and they were put in jail. The Lord freed them, sent an angel and freed them. Verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, now watch where they apply it. For truly in this city they were, gathered, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Did you catch that? They were arrayed against him. They conspired against him. They were angry against him. They sought to put him to death. And oh, by the way, 
the one who sits enthroned upon all time and space and history is laughing as it were because all they are doing is fulfilling the very plan that he had put in place. Remember, he's the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. God had already prepared beforehand that this was exactly how he was going to redeem the world. And these who had gathered against Jesus, just like those who had gathered against David, were on a fool's errand. They were on a divine errand without knowing it. Without knowing it. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So all these kings are conspiring together. They're trying to figure out a way to overthrow David in the same way that even today people say, how can we overthrow this whole idea of a God that we're morally responsible to? How can we overthrow this idea of a resurrected Savior who claims to be the Lord of the world? And how can we conspire and overthrow, minimize, diminish, and sideline the people who represent Him? That conspiring still goes on. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision, in disdain. The question that David said, when he, when he says, why do the heathen rage? Why do the nations rage? That is not a question that's looking for an answer. That's not a question that's looking for an answer. David isn't writing, why do the nations rage? And then, and then looking around going, you got any ideas? You do, you know, do you know why? Do you know why? No, he's not looking for an answer. The question is phrased in more of a, what do you think you're doing? What, what are you possibly thinking? How, have you ever looked at a child and said that? You ever looked at one of your kids and said, what were you thinking? Right? This is what these guys are doing. They're like a couple of kids that are in trouble in the family, and they're trying to conspire in some way to get out of it. We tell this lie. I'll say this. You say that. We'll do this. We'll conspire together. We'll fool mom and dad. And then the whole thing blows up in their face, and we say, what were you thinking? And we're really not looking for an answer. We're just expressing our amazement that they would think that. This is what God is doing. He's expressing His amazement that they would even think to conspire against him. And so he says he's going to speak to him in his wrath or in his anger and terrify them fully. This is the challenging reality that we cannot ignore in the gospel that there is a day coming when Many, multiplied millions of people will hear, well done, good and faithful servants, enter in to the joy of the kingdom. But there is also a day coming when there will be multiplied millions who will hear the voice of the Lord flowing out of His wrath, flowing from His 
anger and it will terrify them fully in its fury because they had refused to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. This psalm speaks not only about God working on David's behalf in that day, but it speaks to God at work for His Son and for His Son's people in these days. They're conspiring together. God has already put in motion what He's going to do. He says, I have already set my king. I've already set my king upon my holy hill on Mount Zion. And again, he's not simply referring to David. I think you're on to this now, right? <clears throat> he is talking about his son. And we'll see that next week in the verses that follow. But here's what I want you to take away this morning before we wrap up this little section of the psalm. And I love it that Spurgeon actually rapped a little bit in a way when he wrote about this psalm. And this line here, God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. God's anointed is appointed and shall not be disappointed. I love that line. God's anointed, who is that? Our Lord Jesus. God's anointed is appointed and He will not be disappointed. Or to quote another passage of Scripture, He will see the reward of His suffering. He will not be disappointed. But here's the thing. <clears throat> That's not just true of the Lord Jesus. That's true of you. That's true of me. You see, if we are God's people, then the Holy Spirit has come to rest upon us as well, hasn't He? The Spirit has filled us. We are anointed ones. We are co-heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the ones that the Bible refers to as a holy nation and a royal priesthood. We are the ones of whom it is said that we will reign with Him upon the earth. That in that day that when judgment has come and God has made all things new, we will be reigning with Him in the new heavens and in the new earth, and we will be participating in the ever-expanding dimensions of His glory and His kingdom throughout the cosmos. We are reigning with Him. We are participating in His authority even now. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, and I'm going to share it with you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. He says, I'm sharing my authority with you. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. I'm making you part of my royal family. And so you are God's anointed you have been appointed, and you will not be disappointed. You won't be disappointed in what He will do through you. Let me 
refer you to two scriptures before we go to communion. Philippians 1, 6, we know this one so well, don't we? And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't it good to know that if your faith rests in him, he is completely and totally committed to bringing you all the way through? All the way through. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Now may the God of all peace, Himself, Himself, God Himself, sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and He will surely do it. Like you, I always struggle. I wrestle from time to time with thoughts that do not exactly suggest that I have a tremendous amount of confidence that God is going to get me through to the end. I have question marks about my own failures and my own sins. How can God use me? How can God love me? How can God keep forgiving me? How will I ever make it to the end? Those thoughts begin to flit through my brain. I see some of you nodding out there. You understand those, the kind of thoughts I'm talking about. But then if I pause for a moment, I remind myself that God is not accepting me on the basis of how good I do. He doesn't accept me on the basis of how well I perform. He accepts me on the basis of what Christ has done for me. And because I am in Christ, and that is where God keeps me, I will be kept blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. God will use me. God will work through me. God will accomplish His purposes for me and through me. He will do it. He is committed to doing it. You see, I'm his anointed, and I've been appointed, and I will not be disappointed, but I will rejoice and be glad. I will say to my soul, hey, soul, why are you cast down within me? Don't do that. <clears throat> Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my salvation. Listen, you and I know that the enemies we face today are the enemies that David faced. You say, no, Jeff, those were all those Ike tribes that were running around. Oh, no, 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 no. You see, our enemy's been present since creation. Our enemy's been present. He's referred to as the prince of the powers of the air, the principalities in darkness, the wickedness in high places. You see, it was it was those, it, those spiritual forces of darkness that were stirring up every bit of warfare, that were stirring up the attacks of that time, that stirred up the, the thoughts of those who wanted to do damage to David and overthrow his kingdom. It was those same forces that worked in the days of Jesus, <clears throat> prompted those who hated him to put him to death to destroy him. 
They tried to destroy him from the moment he was born in Bethlehem till it finally happened at Calvary, but all according to God's plan. And those same forces are arrayed against us today. We know that the Bible says that we are not to be ignorant of the schemes of the plotting of the enemy, but that we are to be those who take to ourselves the whole armor of God. And one of the main pieces of that weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. When I make His Word my meditation, I have the opportunity then to use the shield of faith and to stand against the enemy's attempts to convince me that I'm going to be disappointed. You see, that's what he convinced Adam and Eve of. They'd been appointed. But the serpent comes along and said, oh, no, 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 no. God's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to take this fruit and partake of that because he knows in the day that you do it, you'll be like him. Aren't you disappointed? Aren't you disappointed in what God has done for you? I want you to think with me just for a minute. We're going to go to communion, but think with me just for a minute. How much of your life do you spend disappointed? Disappointed in yourself? Disappointed in others? Disappointed in God? And that disappointment sits on you like a rock, keeping you from joy, keeping you from hope, keeping you from confidence, keeping you from walking fully in who God intends for you to be and the things for which He intends you to be engaged in. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Crushed spirit, fighter verse this week, talks about a crushed spirit that dries up the bones. When we focus on disappointments, doing two things, you ready? Number one, you are diminishing and rejecting God's work through your hardships. When you sit and dwell on disappointment, when you fester, when it sits on you, you are saying that God, obviously, you didn't have a hand in any of this. Or you missed it on this one. When we are given to disappointment, as a weighty thing in our lives, we are diminishing what God could be doing in all, certainly is doing in all of His work in our lives. When we focus on disappointment, we are listening to the voices of those who conspire against the Lord and His anointed. Why do the nations rage and imagine a vain thing the enemies of our soul are always raging against the Word of God and raging against the Word of God in your mind and my mind, in your heart and my heart, raging against it. <clears throat> Why the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? 
He would rather offer you a counterfeit, offer you a way of thinking, offer you a way out, a way that you could change your circumstances without any reference point to what God may be wanting to do in your heart and life. We take the sword of the Spirit, we make God's Word part of our faithful devotion day by day by day. And as we do that, we begin to think God's thoughts more fully. God will bring to your mind certain scriptures. He will bring to your mind certain principles from His Word so that when you're in the midst of that situation in which you need guidance, in which you're desperate, in which you're hurting, in which you feel the weight of disappointment sinking down and taking you down, God will raise up your shield of faith because you'll handle the sword of His Word in your thoughts. You with me there? So important for us. So important for us.